Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Episode 44 of Room 9 is here and waiting for you to listen. In this episode, I am very, very excited to introduce to you, for the third time in Room 9 history, I sit down and have a wonderful conversation with the love of my life and my biggest supporter around, Christine Glavy. This is a great episode. If you are a family member, if you're in a relationship with somebody who is struggling, if you are struggling and you're in a relationship with somebody this is a great episode for you to be listening to. So I hope you really enjoy this one. Before we get to that, obviously head over to the room9podcast.com and fill out a contact page and stay up to date. If you did that, you would know that I just released a new blog. And that blog is centered around really the topic of death and how it's a taboo conversation. So get on over and check that out. While you're there, you can also help out Room 9 on their support page by either helping with a financial donation by signing up to give monthly, which by the way, the monthly one, you get something back in return, or you can just simply help us out by liking and sharing and commenting on all our social media stuff. You will find links to all our social media stuff on the room9podcast.com homepage or even at the bottom of the support page. They are also there. So be sure to check that out. Room 9 has also just kicked off a Know Our Leaders project, and that project really was created for the sole purpose to allow the masses to get to know, understand, and behold the leaders that work in the mental health and substance use disorder industry. I thought it was very important to really give the people who are sacrificing every day for at a company, at a business, give them the credit that they need and that they deserve. And I think that's an awesome way to encourage your employees, your coworkers, and it's also an awesome way to connect your audience and customers with the people who are, are there every day helping your loved ones and helping people who are struggling. They just, I don't feel like they get enough credit, so that's an awesome way you can get more information on the Know Our Leaders page on the Room9Podcast.com website. Other than that, if you haven't listened to the second spectrum health and human services episode be sure to check that out as well that would be the episode right before this one titled spectrum health and human services episode two but that's all i got for you guys enjoy this one it was an awesome conversation it always is an awesome conversation with my bff and make sure you get on our social media pages and comment and let us let us know here at room nine what you thought about this episode and hit me up sean cuddyhe at room nine podcast.com email me let me know what's going on in your life let me know if you have any ideas suggestions comments or concerns that's it guys much love stay strong keep it up keep going thank you for listening thank you for your support this would not be possible without you guys all right peace out all right baby this is our third episode third episode right yeah i think so not counting before it was officially room nine when 
we did the basement episode or the episode the yes, other day. Yes, yeah, that was so our third room, room nine, nine episode. Yep. Yes, that's correct. Not technically episode number three, though. What episode number well, will this potentially be? Episode three for us, yes. Yes. Um, we did one with just us back in the day before there was even room nine. And then we did one with Dave and Diana. Yes. Which is in the middle of my addiction, which I'm pretty sure we've discussed on yep. an episode. And then this is our third Room 9 episode. Okay. So that's what's up. It was episode 21, I believe, I looked the other day. And what episode are you on now? What did you release last week? It was like episode 45. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been quite a few weeks. It's been. It's been a while. Yeah. That's a good chunk of time. Yeah. It was like early Trowbridge staying. It was. I do remember recording that. We kind of did the same thing. We had dinner afterwards. Yep. We mm-hmm. did. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, so yeah, we're going through. Still have the order protection thing on, but we are legally allowed to talk. Correct. No, but you have had some some family things coming, happening. Yeah. And I thought we could probably discuss because there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of family members who listen to this i should say the majority of my listeners are probably family members probably yeah mm-hmm. but that's been going on what else could we i mean it's kind of a different you know i think it's an issue that i mean i know in particular like another family member that i have struggles with the same thing as far as you know other people's opinion of addiction and not wanting their son or daughter to be with a former, you know what I mean? I don't think, mm-hmm. I, I would think for every family, oh, definitely, that's an issue. I don't think that's unique to us. I mean, there are some components to it that are unique to us, but I think that's a universal issue that any family that's gone through addiction is facing. No, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's their son or daughter who struggled with an addiction, I'm sure the family is struggling with their son or daughter's acceptance by their own family and other families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, every family is definitely different. My family has been pretty pretty good about it for the most part. My immediate family, obviously, has been nothing but supportive and good about it. But even, I think, kind of outside my ex, you know, external family, is that the term for it? Extended. Extended family. There we go. Oh, boy. <laughs> this could be an interesting <laughs> episode. <laughs> I mean, outside, you know, with my extended family, I feel, I don't feel like there's much going on as far as... um kind of hate. I mean, even my dad's side of the family was over where my kids were here and they were all seemed pretty genuine. Not that they ever get super excited to see me anyway, but it's not like we're super close, but I don't think it affected them as much as, um, you know, it did a lot of other family members of mine. But so I've been pretty, it's also been, you know, quite some time and they've been around me and have experienced the changes in me. And our situation was always slightly different in the sense that nobody really wanted it even when we began it for the most part. Right. So there was that. And I think this, a lot of people are kind of hoping you would just be like, all right, I'm done with him. Yeah. I definitely think that was, uh, that was the hope. Or I think that was the assumption as well. Not the hope and the assumption that this is the straw that will break the camel's back back, per se. and, And she's done. And it's very interesting as we've talked before, I guess the attitude towards addiction, depending upon the substance you're addicted to. I would say for my family more, it was more of the actions 
mm-hmm. during the addiction than it was like the actual addiction. Yeah, which I guess I think you could probably argue that's almost always the case, that it's the actions. True. Yeah. Right. Because if it wasn't for the addiction, yeah, you. I mean, I never stole anything really in my life until I was dope sick. And then, yeah, you just kind of do crazy, stupid things. Yeah, and it's been a common refrain, you know, through this past summer with different family members of expressing their displeasure in us continuing to talk more so that their displeasure stems from almost like in defense of my kids. Like I heard, I've heard repeatedly from different family members that, well, you know, you can make your decisions and we don't really feel bad for you. We're just doing this in protection of the kids, kind of like you can make your own decisions or, but that there's more anger over what happened to the kids because it wasn't their choice, I guess, as a way Mm -hmm. to phrase it, where I was making a choice, even though I I feel like I did all the right things once I realized there was a problem other than, I guess, not realizing you had relapsed and letting you back in. But even after that, I was pretty resolute in getting you help and being firm in that. But Mm -hmm. the express, I mean, what I've heard from almost everybody is that it's more about the stealing from the kids versus... I guess, really about me per se. And almost like I'm condoning you stealing from them by continuing to speak to you, which I don't see it that way. No. And I've also, we, you know, one of the stipulations that we talked about from the beginning was you you can't really see the kids or have a relationship until there's a sit down and that you pay them back in which you were totally agreeable to. Yeah. It wasn't like I got out of rehab, came right back to living right. full time with you and hanging out with the kids. And No, yeah. that didn't happen. So there were a lot of missing steps, you know, within there that that we agreed upon and that you were agreeable to, but kind of got brushed over in the craziness of the summer. Which was your ex-husband found out and then that I was kind of back around and still with you and stuff like that. And he ended up, you know, losing his stuff. Yes. Which we've talked about so many times too. It's funny, the people who are most upset about it are the people who struggle the most with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, that tends to be... Which yeah, which is always funny, and I'm sure that's the case in so many people's lives. Of you know, they didn't get in trouble for stealing, so they don't have an issue, right? And you see that everywhere as well. Yeah, I I think the common refrain or the unforgivable piece is forgetting the addiction and just focusing on well, he stole from kids, yeah, and not understand like it wasn't a continuous stealing from kids it was connected to the addiction but that part gets chopped off and mm-hmm. it's just like it like he steals from kids as if this is like your My life's thing. work of <laughs> stealing from children but yeah, that's you know crazy. disconnected from the addiction component which it's not disconnected but that's how they're looking at it with a Correct. disconnection. And right. I think that's something that happens everywhere in life with everything is people see something or hear something that they don't agree with and then they totally shut out everything that's good or that they could agree with and that's what they label it immediately. Things obviously aren't that black and white, good and bad, and that's it. There's no crisscross between them and it's, all right, I don't agree with this, you're bad. Everything you say, do think is bad doesn't matter what you do afterwards it's bad right i think that's something that is all over the place in not only the substance use world but just life in general and you hear with people who give lectures people even in you know religious scenes where people are pastors and 
you hear one thing and you don't agree with, you automatically stop listening, stop learning, forget there's other substance to be taken from it and continue on with your immediate belief. I would say that's the majority mm-hmm. of life. Yeah. And I think there's the perception that, as I said earlier, by me by me talking to you, that I'm, I guess, forgetting or not, I guess, protecting my kids. I personally feel the opposite. I mean, you haven't been around them. We've set the stipulation of, you know, paying them back and having a, con- you know, a conversation with them when the issues around your addiction happened. Those, you know, I, I don't feel that I've done a bad job protecting them, but that seems to be the, per- that seems to be the perception that if I talk to you, then I'm basically ignoring everything that was done. But the word forgiveness has not come up in any of the conversations. <laughs> no. I mean, a, a couple, but in general, with everything that happened this summer, the word forgiveness was not, not in the mix. <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't. And as we mentioned right when we started recording this, that so many people didn't want our relationship from the beginning. Correct. So that, this is like the... This is it. This, this is, is the what torch they, they can they carry. They wanted, yeah. Right. And I think trying to discredit me, I consider myself extremely independent. I consider myself to be intelligent but I don't get credit for that I guess which is bothersome I guess I don't get credit for all the things I did right in this process and how good you're doing now because of feelings about you before Mm -hmm. where I feel as if if the situation didn't go the way it did there might not be a room nine there might not be this whole thing I mean there's not any kind of talk about the progress or how yeah, it doesn't, like, essentially really doesn't mean anything to them. But if that's not what anyone wants to see, then they're not going to no. see that. And I'm not going to convince anybody of that because I don't feel that I need to. No, and you shouldn't. You know, at this yeah. point. And but you I can't think, convince yeah. them anyway, even if you wanted to. I think it's it's tough, and I think a lot of families could, I mean, I know a family member that I spoke to whose son went through the same thing that you did and the struggle with, you know, he has a child with uh, this woman and her family is not accepting of the fact that she's still with him and he's the father of their child, obviously. I think it's an issue that a lot of people can connect with of trying to come to terms with what does the future look like as far as family events? Is there a compartmentalization, a separation between, you know, what we do as a couple versus when I'm going to family events? Like, what does that look like? Uh, it's not the case, obviously, for your family. I mean, I'm here, I'm welcome, but that looks different. I think that will look different in the future. And I also believe, like we talked about before, for me, I I don't, I obviously didn't need as much time to start the forgiveness mm-hmm. process because I already had these deep feelings for you. Yeah. Everyone else didn't ha- feel the same way about you that I did. So I can't say that a year and a half is enough for them to consider starting that process. Like just like people can't I guess set my time frame, we can't ask them to say, "Well, it's been a year and a half. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you, you know, why are you still focused on these bad things?" Yeah, no, I agree. And I think again it doesn't help that, you know, they're not spending time. I mean, I feel like it's for the most part your family doesn't even bring it up, ask how I'm doing. I think you have a few you know, one of your sisters. And I mean, for the most part, there's just so many people are like this too, out of sight, out of mind. 
it's awkward, it's uncomfortable to talk about, so I'm just going to ignore it. Right. And then when you do that with anything in life, if you're doing that, and then the subject comes up, it's like a brand new thing over again. Like it just happened. And I think that's a huge, huge problem in life in general with people when they have an issue and they ignore it and they don't want to discuss it or talk about it. And a lot of people don't have the ability to discuss it or talk about it. And it becomes brand new. It becomes fresh again as soon as it's brought up. Whole thing went down, you know, with me and my substance use. Was gone for a while, jail, rehabs for quite some time in rehab. Then I came back, and I think it came up kind of here and there with some of your family members when I was first back around, and then it slowly faded out again. And then it came back up again when it was, oh, Sean's back around. Right. It's the biggest issue with, you know, not talking about stuff, not being open about stuff, not being willing to hear somebody's side of the story and wanting to control things in your loved one's lives. Essentially, it's that conditional love. Yes. I love you as long as you don't do this. I love you as long as you do that. And I've realized more and more how many people have. I mean, I guess in terms we all have, you know, there's conditional love. And then underneath that, there can be unconditional love. Like I would say I love you unconditionally, not in the sense of if you treated me like shit, I would stay with you. But I would still love you and care about you in that sense. Or I think the easiest thing that people connect with, too, with unconditional love is for their children, for mm-hmm. the most part. Not saying everyone, but... No, there's a lot of parents I know that yeah. their love for their... I mean, my ex-wife is a perfect one. Her parents loved her as long as she was doing everything they wanted and wanted them wanted her to. And obviously, I have that current situation as well that... You know, with your dad, yes. Yeah, manifested this summer. Mm-hmm. But it's always been that way. It's just... This brought that out. At the forefront, correct. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah, that brings out a lot of things too. A big issue, a trying issue will bring that out in somebody that you, you know, one of your family members. As always, I try to flip the roles, you know, if it were, you know, one of my sisters or if it were Mary Grace or if it was Sam, if the roles are reversed, how would I be? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would hope with having this experience behind me that I would be different, but I try to think about it in that way. If they had gone through the same thing, like what would my, one of my, I guess, strengths and faults though, is I am a very forgiving person. Mm -hmm. So. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're like me in that area as well, because I'm extremely forgiving. And I've spent many years thinking that was a fault more so than a strength, but like anything, Something used correctly is can be it's a strength if it's used correctly. And forgiveness doesn't always mean either that you let somebody come back in your life. Forgiveness can be I've forgiven you, but you know this is done, which could have been something you know you could have done with me. Forgive you for this, but you know I can't keep this going anymore. For instance, I'm assuming that would happen knowing you if I ended up relapsing and stealing again and all of those things. I think that would. I've always told people anyway. I don't think you would go through this again. No, this whole I don't process. Think I would either. As much as you love me and care for me, I don't think you would. So mm-hmm. I think it's a strength, but the problem is now I've learned I can't if I put myself in other people's shoes, and I've learned this a lot even more. I'd say really over the last few months, when I put myself in other people's shoes, even like for instance with Corey, my good friend Corey, you know, I owe him money that he's lent me. I didn't actually ever steal anything from him, but lied and manipulated him into lending me and borrowing money but I put myself in issues and I would have been here by his side the entire time saying I'm not worried about money right now you know so when I do that I find 
I'm always like, no, I still would be supporting this person and forgiving and loving towards this person. So that doesn't work for me, I realized. Yeah. Because <laughs> it makes me more confused. Like, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't have handled the situation this way. There are, yeah, there are times when I'm like, all right, yeah, I can understand where they're coming from. Well, if you look at the actions fueled by the addiction, if you're someone that's looking for a reason or someone that needs a reason not to forgive, I mean, there's enough. There's enough true. there. Yeah. If someone's looking for something, I get it like that. You know, for some people, if they're already looking for something anyway, you know, they can take a moral stand on, you know, stealing and manipulating and lying and they can justify and it. can justify yeah. it. Mm -hmm. And I get that. Holding on to it for that long, I don't really get, but also that's not me either as mm -hmm. far as holding on to anything for that Well, long. that's something else so many people are clueless about, that holding on to hate and resentment and anger and things like that are just hurt you and nobody else. And I, I mean, I kind of, I've always told you, I get motivation out of the people I know who are in the background waiting and quietly cheering and rooting for me to fail. And I'm sure so many people go through that with family members are just that they're just, all right, they're going to fail. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. And I, a lot of that, I think, comes from they think that's going to hold off disappointment when it does happen or whatever it may be. That, oh, see, I was right. I knew it. Right. I knew this was going to happen. You know, it makes them right. And mm -hmm. and it, some of it is, you know, delaying disappointment or by if you're saying it, then you can, I guess, talk yourself into the fact mm -hmm. that you're not disappointed by I it I knew happening. this was going to happen. Right. <laughs> And you're also making yourself right, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of people love to be yeah. right. No, they do. And they're living ego-based. But it's a conversation for a different time. <laughs> 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 but it, it's so difficult to go through. Because you want, obviously, you want your family members to be there to back you up, to give you their support and their love and their acceptance. And most people, especially with substance use, aren't getting it. They're not getting that. Partially to blame, I feel, is the narrative that's out there and the statistics that they throw out. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people fall into those and say, you know, the likelihood of a relapse, the percentage isn't on the side, going to be stealing soon again. You know, that whole, mm -hmm. I feel like the narrative in society supports people's attitude. I don't feel like there's, I feel like there's more hope uh, now that it's, you know, being discussed nationally and there's, you know, states are filing lawsuits against these pharmaceutical companies. Like, I feel that there's more, but I still feel like the narrative is it failing, is, yeah. you know, the well, statistics. It comes, it comes back to people don't educate themselves. So many people have a point of view of something that they have never educated themselves on. And the psychology term for this, I think it's called like the something Kruger effect or whatever. The less you know, the more you think you know. The more you know, the less you think you know. And so many people do that all the time. They read one thing about, for instance, like a safe injection site. Oh, nope, crime is up higher. You're encouraging people to use drugs. And nobody looks at the actual real statistics of how crime doesn't go up in the neighborhood with the safe injection site. People are more likely to go and get help because they're with people. HIV and AIDS all go down. Needles laying around all, everywhere goes down. And there's so many beautiful things that come from that. Same thing with like decriminalizing all drugs and people hear something and have this preconceived notion of what it actually means and what it's going to cause. And they stick to it like they have done years and years of research on it. And I think that's such a huge issue throughout society in general 
whether it's on substance use or not. They People form an opinion, read one paragraph of something on the internet, and think they know everything about it and think it's 100% fact and that they're right. And they'll argue with you to the death, like they have done all the scientific research on something. And it just dumbfounds me Yeah, that people go around and walk around and live their lives based on, in quotes, facts <laughs> that aren't facts. Yeah. And I honestly think I would lo- I wish I could look it up right now. I'm pretty sure the percentage of relapse goes crazy down after a year of sobriety. I'm sure it does. I think after like I, I think it's actually when I remember reading it because I texted you the statistics. Yeah, this was did. a little bit ago because it just came up in this um, article I found and I was looking at all the statistics and I think it goes way up for success. Your chances of success after I think it was 17 or 18 months of sobriety. A year and a half it was. But people will still say they'll look at a relapse statistic, and that can mean so many things. And this is the problem with statistics, as helpful as they are, they can also be very hurtful because people will lump you in as a statistic no matter what. Right. I think, too, something that we've discussed is not that I would wish for anyone to obviously go through the addiction scenario, but I've, I'm done... I guess anyone that I guess is willing to listen, I shouldn't say I'm done, but I'm done trying to, I guess, explain away people's judgment because they, you really don't know until you've seen it Mm -hmm. positive. And I think of, you know, one of my favorite episodes on a podcast other than on room nine, uh, (laughs) this broken brain podcast with Drew Pruitt. He had Peter Cronin, who I absolutely love, not more than you though. And he talks a lot about judgment. And this is stuck with me because I do it when I catch myself in this pattern. But he says, if you were to watch someone's life like a movie, you may not agree with the decisions they made, but you wouldn't judge again because you would watch it and say, oh, that's why they Mm. did that. And I try to think about that when unrelated even to addiction in any scenario when I'm judging someone, I try to go back to that idea of if you were that person with all of those same conditions in the environment, you would be making the same exact choice. So how can you judge someone when everything has led up to them making that? And Mm -hmm. I try to think about that. And when I have people judging me even speaking to you, I really don't acknowledge that judgment anymore because until you've been through it or until you could watch an entire film of my life and our interactions with each other, they really don't get it. So what is Mm -hmm. the point of me making all of this effort explaining it when there really isn't anything to explain? They're looking for something to judge. If you were to see everything that has happened, you would understand the why Mm -hmm. behind the decisions. But until that point, you really can't judge it. No, I think that's an awesome point. And so much is judgmental. And there's so many stereotypes about addiction. And until you've been through a lot of these scenarios, you really, you know, and I could honestly say before everything that we have gone through, you know, everything you were seeing on the news about like heroin addicts and this and that, I definitely had some preconceived notions in my head. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first was told that you were using heroin, my mind was totally blown. I was like, how did I live with, like, how was I living with? Like, because I had the preconceived notion of heroin addicts living under a bridge, 
Yeah, I honestly, mm-hmm. I did. I, that no, was a yeah. preconceived notion. There is no way, shape, or form that I thought that you were using heroin. I thought you were using pills, which, as we've talked about, is essentially the same thing. Yeah, but but it's in not either. No at the way, same shape, time. or form would someone have said that that's what you were doing because I honestly, the preconceived notion that I had in my head was that you wouldn't be able to function at all, mm-hmm. and you were functioning. I mean, obviously, towards the end, it was getting tough, but you were functioning. Mm-hmm. That was not what I thought. Yeah, I learned that was a big learning curve for me because I had these preconceived notions, which I think a lot of people have until they go through it. No, or do. even the judgments of you know, you know, you knew he had used heroin before. How could you let him back in? I mean, I didn't know a lot about relapse. I just thought, oh, Sean said he's going to stop using heroin. Okay, <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bada boom. It's done. <laughs> I didn't. I really, it was a learning curve. No, yeah. So yeah, you can judge me and. Until you've been through it, too, you really can't, if you if you were me with all the circumstances leading up to that scenario, you would have made the same decision, but you weren't. Mm-hmm. And you didn't see everything leading up to that scenario. And I learned a lot. I know a lot more than I ever did. Same here. And that's the whole <laughs> game. That's what this is about, right? It is. Yeah, it is. And it's also about love and it's also about forgiveness and it's also about growing as a person. And that's what I choose to do. If other people don't, then... I can't force them to come on this ride with me. No, you can't. And that's exactly what it is. Just a ride. It's all a ride. I wonder how much judgments, there's just kind of this idea popped in my head now, like judgments are made on people in order for the person who's making the judgment as like a protection mechanism almost. For instance, the friend I just helped move back into an Oxford house who was breaking up with his girlfriend who had two kids. I know for him, I mean, he was bawling his eyes out. He knew he made a mistake moving in with her. He knew she was going to be hurt. He knew the kids were going to be hurt. He was crying when I was helping him move stuff because he felt so bad and so guilty and ashamed and everything else and disappointed in himself. and, And she acts as if this is so easy for you to do, blah, 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 calls him, you know, calling him names and everything else. And I feel like, you know, obviously if she stopped for a second and thought and looked at the situation, she would realize that it wasn't easy for him. But that judgment of being able to say, you're a piece of shit, you treat me like this, makes the pain, at least in a illusory way, easier and lighter. You get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, or the misconception of people, like family, friends, whatever, of... You know, you get out of rehab and it's like a movie where we're running through a field into each other's arms. Mm-hmm. This has not been an easy process. No, most it, people wouldn't have lasted. No, I mean, it's not, through. you know, making the decision to continue has not been like, you know, you get out of rehab and we're holding hands and everything. Flowers <laughs> are popping up everywhere. I mean, that has not been, no. you know, and everyone's like, well, how can you just forget everything? I can just forgive everything and how you just... You get clean, you know, no one knows that process. Like, that's not it at all. No, we've worked <laughs> that hard is not what on our relationship. That is not what happened at all. No. In that scenario. No, I mean, in the changes we've made. And I mean, I always tell our relationship before I, I hurt my back and really lost it in addiction. I would always say it was well above your average relationship. I feel like our connection was has always been is and always has been insane we've never really argued about much Um, most of the times when we get frustrated with each other it's because of a lack of time that we have spent together 
And I think after I got out of rehab, the amount of work we've put in our relationship as far as communication, as far as talking about things, counseling stuff, I mean, everything, all the work we've put into it, it's been a long road of us really working and continuously have to, we have to work on things. And a lot of people, it's easier not to do that. And you're right. People haven't seen that. They have no idea. No. And I have lost the, I have lost feeling the need to, to give a laundry list, and I yeah. really don't. Because they're not gonna. No. You know they're not gonna absorb it anyway because they no. don't want to. Yeah, I've I'm done with that. I'm pretty much done talking about it. Period. Other than between us, because mm-hmm. I I don't feel the need. I've lost uh, my people pleasing, which is very liberating. Mm-hmm. Nice sense of freedom. That is nice to have. And that's what we're all looking for. I would ultimately say is freedom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know in myself when I feel trapped, uh, that's when I've made some of my worst decisions. Yeah. And I try to think, all right, you're you're feeling trapped. Where in your life do you have this freedom? Like, what can you be grateful for right now? And I feel like that loosens things up a bit for me. Like, look at all these areas where you do have freedom to do all these things. I mean, we're looking for freedom and happiness, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you could even argue freedom is happiness. You could. And once again, to quote Peter Crone, true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness, being happy for no reason whatsoever. That's what it's all about. Yeah, well, that searching for happiness is something, it's like running on a treadmill. Correct. Where are you happy right now? Mm-hmm. You're, you're constantly, us human beings are constantly chasing something in the future to make us happy now, and we get it, and... It, we're not happy anymore, so we keep chasing something else. It's a constant cycle. Kind of sounds like addiction. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, I don't think I was using necessarily to find happiness as much as I was to numb pain. If that makes any sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a big. I think you that's one of the big differences. You definitely were not happy. No, no. At the, I mean, obviously, there's parts of my life that were beautiful and awesome, but I just kind of ignored those. And that comes, and that's how that whole I'm alone when you have hundreds of people around you that are there to love and support you feeling comes from. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of the reason why we need self-love and self-acceptance and, you know, self-forgiveness and all those other self things. Because when you don't have that, you can feel alone when there's a hundred million people around you that love you and support you. And if you switch it around, if you have self-love and acceptance, you can feel like you have everybody around you when there actually is nobody. Because ultimately, we're all alone. That's right. On our own journey anyway, at least. Right. And you have to be okay with yourself when you're alone. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was just thinking about that the other day, how much I drive in silence now without anything on, no music, the radio. And I even think about when I first graduated high school and was working, I like I was everything I was doing in life I had to have music on always there's always me even sometimes I remember right after high school for many years I would have to have music on to sleep and it's just so fun we're constantly looking for that next you know escape to uh, keep away from ourselves yeah and you see that in so many people there's so many people that aren't comfortable to be alone yeah I they manifest in society in so many different ways mm-hmm. and that I think was one of the biggest takeaways from going through the addiction process with you where I wasn't, you know, we weren't speaking. We weren't allowed to speak. I didn't know what was happening with you. And I came to the realization I accepted that I don't know. And I 
came to the realization, like, I have to be okay with me. And I think, you know, as difficult as the addiction period was, I think it gave me the space to do that and mm -hmm. know, like, I am going, I'm okay. I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm still okay. And it's not saying every moment I was, you know, resolute, <laughs> ready to skip everywhere I was going. But... No, but even in those times of sorrow and depression and anxiety, you can still feel at peace. Correct. And that's the key. I would say the biggest example was for me, which was so awesome, was when my kids just left. And I kind of wrote a little social media post about it, but it was such a... Normally, when they would leave to go back to their moms in Florida, it would be, I'd feel so much guilt and so much shame. I mean, that kind of pain. And this time, it was such a peaceful, beautiful pain. And it was so, it was so awesome and such an amazing experience that I had this time when they left. I mean, it was super difficult. You have my son bawling, wouldn't let go of me. Then my daughter starts crying. She doesn't want to let go of me in the airport. And you know, that's extremely painful, extremely hard to do and go through, but it, yet it was such a beautiful moment. And that's one thing that I've tried to really start sharing a lot more with people is to f learn how to find that, that beauty in the pain. Like when you can learn to do that, it loses its sting completely. Mm -hmm. Not saying you run around and start looking for it because it's such an awesome experience to be depressed or sad or have somebody that you love die. But when you learn how to embrace that moment for what it is, it becomes such a beautiful experience. And that's hard. And I wish I had like a recipe to give somebody here. This is how you do it. You but, really have to come to it on your own. Obviously. And yeah. I, I feel, you know, any family member who's going through the addiction phase uh, it, that's a tough thing to hear, mm -hmm. to find like you yourself, if you are not the one that's suffering, even if you are the one that's suffering through the addiction, it's really difficult to hear that you have to learn to be okay in the I don't know, because the I don't know is no. so crazy scary. I mean, so many different scenarios can pop up, but you have to know like I myself, I don't know what's coming and I need to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. I, I need to be okay with myself and I need to be okay with not knowing. And that's a really tough thing. It's super, when especially, you don't know. Yeah, especially when all you can think about is your son or daughter overdosing and dying. Correct. But I was just talking about this with somebody the other day and it's something I'm planning to do like a solo episode on is that when we start becoming at peace, I think that's the word I want to use, at peace with our children and our cousins and our brothers and sisters dying and we can be like you know what this is something that could very could be very likely to happen and if we become at peace with it i think that's when we'll start being able to handle our loved ones who are lost in substance use the correct way because right now all i think about is what a parent's going through in their head or you know a loved one of somebody who's struggling it's going through their head is all right, well, if I make this boundary and threaten to kick them out of the cross it and they cross it and they, end up, and they end up overdosing and they end up dying, it's going to be my fault. And we start making decisions in this fragile area of that realm. And then all, and then nobody's changing. Nobody's doing nothing. Right. And this Based is why, fear. yeah, this is why parents have kids shooting up in their house because, oh, I, at least here I got Narcan and I can save them if I find them overdosed, overdosing. And it's just not making any decisions for us to be able to cause change or at least facilitate or allow change. Change is scary. Mm-hmm. Because the change that happens might not be the change that you were looking yeah. for. 
It is. But I think that's why it's so important to come to peace, figure it out how to come to peace with Or not making death. a decision out of fear. Mm-hmm. Which it's I know tough. is very easy, much easier said than done, but I think it has to be done in order for things to happen the way they should be happening or anyway. Change to happen, yeah. yeah. And that's that's super tough. And I know that's again, that's easier said than done. And they even knew you know, the one new law that was passed, that Stevens Law, that where, like, if I had you on my release forms from in my rehabs and counselors and that, if they had any suspicion of me using that they have to call you now. Like, they would call my parents or they would call you if you were on my release form. If I had a dirty tox or if I was using or whatever it is. And which I, I just disagree with it because I think that's going to cause vulnerability issues between a counselor and somebody that they're counseling because, they're I mean... Not, yeah, like they won't trust seeing anything yeah, to them. They're not going to want to open up, and that was my biggest... And the lady who really pushed for this, her son died of an overdose, and her big thing was, well, if they would have let me know, that she found out they knew that he relapsed, and but they can't... They couldn't say anything to her, and that's what she fought for, that they're not in their right state and everything else. But I don't... You know, I talked about this with Janet Gaskin a few episodes ago that... People are going to use if they want to use. You're not going to stop your son and daughter. If you knew they relapsed, you're not going to stop them from continuing to go out. That's not going to prevent them from going out and overdosing on accident. You're just going to know that that's You're just going to know it's going to, you know, that they relapsed. You're not going to stop them. There's nothing nobody could have done to stop me. I mean, I've shared this experience with everybody that I, I've talked to about this whole situation I was walking down to your house to go back in there to take stuff when I was dope sick crying because I didn't want to do it. Like, I did not. I knew. I was like, I sh- why? I can't do this. I can't do this. And the whole walk down to your house, that's what I was doing. Just crying because I didn't want to do it, but I didn't want to be sick anymore either. Like, it's just this internal battle of hell isn't even an adjective for it, but it's it's insane what people are going through. And even now that I'm clean for... As long as I've been clean for and seeing people use, I still have to remind myself when I see people lying and manipulating <laughs> that, hold on a second, you remember exactly what this was like. Because it's so easy to forget it, especially forget about it if you've never gone through it or experienced it. Yeah, I could imagine so. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. But it's the same. It connects back to what we were talking about earlier with judgment. Like you can't judge because you don't know. Or you have to, you know, like how you said, you know, I had to go back and say, wait a second, Mm -hmm. I was doing this same exact thing. It's so easy to forget. It is. And it's so easy to, yeah, put those judgments on the people, which I love hearing you say that because that's so, such a determinism thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, I think it would. I think about it all the time now before... When I'm feeling that judgmental, you know, when I catch myself in it, I think about that all the time. And my hope is that a lot more people come to that, but I've realized that, as we've also talked about, that I can only work on me. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way I can improve the world is by working on myself. If you better yourself, you better the world. Yeah. <laughs> that's something that if ever, you can imagine if like everybody did that, so somebody, no, I can't actually. Somebody was I trying to, I told you a little bit about that political post thing on, that was on Facebook mm-hmm. or whatever, and I was just laughing when I was sick of this guy I was flipping out. I'm like, 
man, if people put this much energy into working on themselves, it would be a crazy different universe we'd be in. Yeah, it would. But as we all know, working on yourselves is not fun sometimes. No, it's or not. Or easy going through. There's no turning back. Things that That's you suck at. crappy part. That's the whole red pill, blue pill analogy right there. Once you become aware, there's, there's no, no turning going back. back. You can't get plugged back in. You can try. doesn't work that way, though. No, it does not. And you start to realize, you start to find more comfort in being alone. And you also start to realize, I guess, I don't want to say eliminate people. Because that sounds terrible. <laughs> you eliminate them. You don't eliminate them, but you really drop the trying to convince anyone of anything. And you mm -hmm. are okay with that, at peace with that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good place to be in. That is, speaking of freedom, that's freedom in its truest form right there. It is. And I think your circle, your circle decreases as far as people. Mm -hmm. And that's also a tough thing because for a lot of people, that's where they validate themselves. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. People definitely look for that validation in other people, which is why you see people in pointless, shitty relationships all the time. I'd rather be with this person than to be alone. But don't judge them, Sean, because you can't. You would be making the same decision possibly if you were them. That's the one thing I was talking about with my one friend who just went through that breakup I used earlier as an example. That's one of his biggest things is he's just, we, you know, we were talking about it. He's just like, I don't, I find validation in women being with them. And I've always told people that you find, if you're going to find that, like, in quotes, perfect person, whatever that means, obviously perfect as in doesn't mean they're flawless, but perfect relationship. If you're going to find that, you need to be comfortable to be alone because then a relationship that forms from that is just going to be organic and natural and there'll be no, nothing forced upon it, which I think that's exactly how our friendship started. I was like, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> I'm just going to be alone the rest of my life, stuck with this nutcase. And so, yeah, it's something I always tell people, just be comfortable to be alone and then something will happen or that's when something can at least happen anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that advice. It's tough, though. It is. I guess being aware of that feeling of loneliness but not trying to fill it in, that's tough. Mm-hmm. That's a struggle. Which I guess is probably a better way to put it. Or not being aware of it at all and just filling in and not even knowing you're doing it would actually be an easier way to live. <laughs> that's, that's true, <laughs> yes. But really not living, that's the ironic part. I was trying to think of that Carl Jung quote I used in my presentation that people do the most basically insane things to avoid facing their own darkness and you see it up everywhere all over the place well is it that their own darkness but is it that fear of death i feel like drives everything mm -hmm. ultimately yeah that's a crazy thing to think about I just put that blog up about death and how we need to uh learn to like to face it and be at peace with it and i think you see that a lot more it's a lot more common on the eastern side of the planet where they're really, you know, most people are taught from a young age anyway that life and death are, you know, basically the same thing. One can't, the yin and yang. I guess that's what that is, essentially, is the yin and yang. I want to say, I just saw, I have not read it fully, but there's just an interview with Ram Das. I don't know if it was the New York Times or the New York Review. I'm not quite sure where he talks about. I don't know if his terminology was looking forward to death or, you know, he's ready for it, I think was his terminology. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting. Not many people are would be comfortable saying that. No. 
and we need to get everybody. Well, it's such a taboo topic. Nobody wants it. I mean, we just completely repress it and ignore it that it's going to happen, that we're all, you know, going to die one day. <laughs> right. And yeah, and then nobody wants to talk about it. And going back to the whole being a parent of a loved one that's struggling with substance use, when you're acting and operating your decision making, your boundaries, your whatever it is, your rules out of that state of mind, just I don't think I don't think it can ever facilitate change. Just as in repressing your own death, we do so many things to fill that anxiety. Materialism, add up our you know, as much money as we can collect. That's why you have trillionaires that are cheap and trying to save up more money than they could ever possibly imagine to spend in their lifetime. I don't know if there are any trillionaires. Whatever. You know what I mean. <laughs> Jesus. You're such a brat. Sorry. I just... Bajillionaires. <laughs> I had to rein you back in there. <laughs> You're such a brat. This is why I don't invite you on the show very often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby. Well, any last thoughts for the the people out there who are in relationships with loved ones that are using and family members, dealing with family members and whatnot. Oh, gosh. You know, what's your last bit of advice? You, it's tough. You have to do what feels right for you, um, which I would say in any scenario uh, outside of addiction. You have to be okay with you, first of all, and you have to be okay with the I don't know because there is no answer. There is no, there is no formula. If no. I do this, this, and this, then they will stop using. If I do this, this, and this, they won't overdo. There's no formula for it. And I think it has to start. You have to start with yourself of giving up, trying to control or prevent, and, you know, work on, I guess, being there for that person. It's tough. Anyone dealing with someone in the situation that we're in, as far as where not everyone is. Uh, supportive of the relationship with the person that's recovered Uh, that's also once again you have to do what no one knows what's behind your decisions you have Mm -hmm. to do what's right for you a lot of it I mean a lot of it is letting go a lot of it is kind of releasing the the need to control it because there is no control over it yeah and that need to know you don't know the quicker you can accept I don't know (laughs) Which is so tough in our society Mm -hmm. because, you know, with computers in our hands and everything, everyone feels there's an answer there, but there is no answer. And the sooner you can become comfortable with the I don't know is the sooner that you're at peace. And it's a really tough thing. It is. But I'm telling you, life, it, it increases the peace and the freedom that you feel increases exponentially. Yes, it does. Yeah. And so many people want that. I mean, I've wanted it. I've spent so many years of my life since my mid-20s trying to read books. And you find out things like intellectually, you can know anything you want to know. But to actually truly feel it for yourself is a totally different thing. And there's no one way to do anything like that. No, I mean, during the course of your prior to your addiction experience and going through it, we still had great conversations about things that we had read and... Mm-hmm. You know, spirituality and awareness and all of these things. It didn't stop anything. No, obviously not. You know, not. you knew everything. You mm-hmm. intellectually knew everything. But intellect that doesn't matter. No, that means Intellectually nothing. doesn't yeah. mean anything. <laughs> You're not feeling it. I mean, I could have told you 20,000 times 
what a beautiful person you were. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really matter what I say. No. If you're not feeling it. It's nice to be encouraged every once in a while. But yeah, if you don't truly believe that for yourself, nothing will never change. No. So I guess you're you're there as a as a support, but you really have to start with yourself. To a lot of people, that's going to sound selfish, but it's not. It really isn't. No, I always feel like that's kind of a paradox. By in order to be selfless, you need to be selfish. I'm gonna get that tattooed on my neck. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Please uh. don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right, baby, I love you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's always my pleasure. All right. right. I'll talk to y'all later. All right, peeps. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something from it. Spread this message around. Spread this episode around. Spread the word around. Help us out. Help everybody else out. One of the biggest things that is lacking right now is just education and giving people the knowledge that they are not alone in this struggle because it is a struggle it is a battle it is a war and we need people to start understanding more especially the ones that are closest to us so room9podcast.com contact form support page get on there help us out let us know like share comment on social medias and that's all i got great week make sure you have one and i will talk to you next week peace out